Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 126, Sound as a Pound. Now that we've successfully covered the depths of the Depression in the United States and how it spread, I'm going to be taking a few episodes to cover its effects around the world and how many of our most important players reacted to it. And after that, take some time to look at the undertold stories coming out of Central Europe, which to you might not seem as important at first glance, but those histories are vital to understanding how the big picture of the Second World War played out. If you're thinking, wait a minute, the Depression is far from over in the U.S., what gives? Well, yeah, you're right. Uh, In fact, my coverage of the U.S. during the 30s will be dominated by the story of the slow recovery and national rebuilding, and I chose the changeover between Hoover and FDR as a handy break in that. But for now... The first place on our new itinerary will be the UK, and we'll be picking up where I left off way, way back in episode 21. I had left off in early 1929, just after their general election that had returned the Labour Party back into power under Ramsay MacDonald. Just a quick recap of the political players in the UK, the Labour Party was the left-leaning bloc. It appealed to the proletariat, most strongly pressed for far-reaching reforms and redistributing the wealth of society fairly. While its own left wing would have wished the party to be truly socialist in character, and while their political enemies would insist they were aligned more with international communism than with the UK's interests, the reality was that the party had drifted towards the center as it became more prominent. Case in point, Ramsay MacDonald himself had mellowed his politics considerably with age and after working for so long within the halls of power. Much of the party leadership no longer felt bound by the unions that had made up the bedrock of their support, as by 1929, those unions had been severely weakened by the unsuccessful Great Strike and a general economic malaise that had made employment scarce. Further to the center of the political spectrum was the Liberal Party, still dominated by David Lloyd George, the former Prime Minister during much of World War I and the immediate post-war years, it had previously been the reformist party before World War I. Although this being the time period it was, that reformist bent had been mostly for modest social programs to relieve only the worst excesses of the free market in British life. Now that Labour had stolen its thunder, as well as its former prominence, the Liberals were mostly known for their commitment to global free trade policies. Not terribly inspiring stuff, and by 1929 the party's resources were fast drying up, and Lloyd George's continued dominance was a result of putting up huge sums of his own money into the party's coffers in order to prop it up. The last main party was the Conservative Party, a.k.a. the Tories. They were the socially traditional, economically protectionist, rabidly pro-business segment of British politics. They were also the group most sensitive to preserving Great Britain's imperial power around the world. The Tories had largely dominated British politics in the past decade, and their defeat in 1929 came down to being unable to turn around the decline of Britain's traditional industries. That failure at the polls, though, had not proven absolute. Labour had secured the most seats in the UK's parliament, but not a majority of them. Like in 1924, MacDonald would be a prime minister of a minority government dependent on support from the Liberals to keep his place in power. The track record of the first attempt was poor. The liberals may have fancied themselves as reformists at one time, but they had absolutely rejected far-reaching expansions of government responsibility that labor advocated in order to boost health care, education, and job protections for the working class. As a result of their mutual tensions, 
the relationship had broken down back in 1924, and the liberals had turned on MacDonald. This time around, Lloyd George gave his assurances that he would be more supportive of labor in this instance, and the new government made pledges to make good on its talk of enhanced government programs that dated back to its last time in power, as well as to invest in expanding and modernizing British industry to better equip it for the challenges of the modern day. Keep in mind that part of what made the British economy so uncompetitive was that its factories used older equipment as the nation had industrialized from an earlier date, and so their facilities were uncompetitive with foreign companies. Too bad for labor and the UK in general, the new government's rise to power coincided neatly with the speculative bubble on Wall Street growing out of control, followed by its dizzying collapse. The stock market boom in New York was important for the UK, as while domestic firms appeared to be poor investment opportunities, the ones in America appeared to be surefire wins. In order to get in on the action in New York, British investors would convert their pounds into gold, which they would then use to invest in America which, yes, goes right back to the pitfall of being on the gold standard, where the precious metal would flow out of the country and ergo construct the money supply at home. This process was stopped when Wall Street finally crashed in spectacular fashion in October 1929. But that event, of course, was just the start of greater miseries. Despite the bad economic news of the 1920s, Britain was still a trading nation, more so than almost any other country, its operations depended on buying goods in one place and either selling them someplace else or refining the purchased good into a manufactured product and then selling it someplace else. The great web of global commerce was Britain's lifeblood. Thing was that global trade by 1929 depended on American financing to give much of the world money in which to buy things. While it took months for the Depression to be really felt by many in America, the disruptions in world trade immediately hit the UK. People the world over just didn't have the money with which to buy stuff from abroad, and British exports declined dramatically, with them having a total value of £839 million in 1929, but only £461 million in 1931, a whopping 45% drop-off. Unemployment went in a corresponding direction. Until late 1929, it had been slowly trending downwards, coming in at a little over 1.3 million unemployed persons by the end of that year. By the end of 1930, it had skyrocketed to 2.5 million, a disaster for a government that had pledged to reduce unemployment. Not that Labour's track record in the months leading up to the October 1929 debacle had been terribly impressive. Their ideas to tackle unemployment consisted of public works projects both in the UK and abroad in the Empire. The idea being that if work wasn't available in the home aisles, it might be worth relocating people out to the dominions and colonies to relieve pressure at home. Hardly the stuff you'd expect from the supposed Socialist Party, but the nature of budgets under the gold standard set artificial bounds to work within. Because money had to be able to be redeemed by gold, and the government couldn't just deficit spend its way out of the problem, and was forced to keep those balanced budgets. In modern days, it's accepted as a given that deficit spending is most needed in a downturn to help spark activity and also demand that wouldn't naturally come from the market, while paring back spending in more bountiful times when it wasn't necessary. Thanks to the monetary constraints of the day, this was inverted, with spending only being possible in the good times when the tax base was healthy. In the bad times, drastic action wasn't seen as possible from a budgetary stance. This understandably frustrated the more youthful and active parts of labor. 
In particular, the onset of the crisis by early 1930 spurned a new member of Labour to propose much more drastic action, budgets be damned. This was a man named Oswald Mosley, who became infamous for later founding the British Union of Fascists. Mosley, though, had already led an interesting political life. Born into a family with the status of baronet, meaning a minor noble, he served in the army in World War I and married a daughter of Lord Curzon, who himself had been the Viceroy of India and was a major national figure in general. With all that going for him, it was an easy step to enter into politics with the Conservatives. While he gained a seat in Parliament, he wouldn't last long in the party. He split over the Ireland crisis, condemning the tactics used by the Black and Tans. He served for some years as an independent, but by 1924 had joined with Labour, being attracted to the idea of overhauling and modernizing society through judicious use of government power. When Labour achieved power for a second time, he was assigned by MacDonald to work under a senior minister, a man named James Thomas, in order to bring down unemployment. The experience, though, would be frustrating for Mosley, as he justifiably felt that not enough was being done to tackle the problem. When the new crisis really got underway in 1930, he began to overstep the bounds placed before him. He drew up a far-reaching plan to increase pensions, lower the retirement age in order to boost employment numbers of younger workers, throw up protectionist tariffs on foreign goods, modernize agriculture, and place industry and banking in publicly managed hands. It was, in short, the kind of plan that many had expected of labor from the very beginning. Mosley bypassed Thomas in presenting this to MacDonald in the cabinet, but the moderate group of ministers sat on the proposals for months, finally rejecting them in May 1930. This caused Mosley to resign his position and spend the next year condemning the government within Labour Party gatherings. His position aroused sympathy, and in October 1930, he came very close to getting the party itself to investigate his proposals and make a public report on their merit. But leadership opted to avoid a split with their own sitting government. MacDonald reassured his fellows that socialism was a slow, evolutionary process. Mosley, self-assured to a startling degree, attempted in February 1931 to launch a party coup, announcing his own platform and the creation of the New Party. He might have actually believed that the most active of labor would follow, but they did not. Only four members of parliament joined with them, and after elections in 1931, the small grouping was completely wiped out. I won't linger on Mosley too much, as he really didn't affect too much after leaving labor, but he would dip out to Italy, where he would adopt the fascist ideology. He'd come back to Britain in 1932 to unite the nation's fascists into the British Union of Fascists, the BUF, but the party was never terribly popular among voters. Their main claims to fame were riots and street violence, all of which narrowed their already limited base of support. By the latter 30s, Mosley and the BUF were on the fringes, their supporters deeply passionate but few in number. Unlike, say, in Italy, the establishment elites never felt threatened enough to feel a need to utilize their services. But in 1930, Mosley was correct in stating that labor needed to take drastic measures to save the nation. But as I pointed out early last season, the distinctive trait of the 1920s was that it produced middling leaders across the political spectrum, and in the UK, the leaders of the 20s carried on into the 30s. There would be no great call to action, and the labor government would continue to pursue moderate measures. Mosley's motivations might have sprung from personal ambition, but they represented a rare example of someone trying to think big. To be fair to MacDonald, he would depend on the liberals to get legislation through Parliament, 
so his hands were kind of tied there. A bill introduced in December 1929 to help coal miners, for example, was only narrowly passed. The contents slashed the miners' shifts from eight to seven and a half hours without docking their pay, but the liberals objected to the added measure of setting production quotas. The point of introducing quotas was to actually keep production of coal down and therefore keep prices up to support the businesses. Larger mines had a nasty tendency to boost operations to drive prices down to mess with their competitors, something the new laws sought to prevent, if only for the sake of keeping employment stable. The liberals objected as that would interfere with free markets, and only a handful supported the measure, and only after labor backpedaled on the idea of actually raising wages. Another law to raise the age when a teen could leave school was <laughs> nixed outright. If that all sounds depressingly humdrum to you, the UK in general felt the same way. Things were going poorly enough with the government that everyone assumed by early 1930 that there'd be a major shakeup. That didn't really happen, though. Instead, the government just tried to keep everything business as usual all through 1930. Even as the global economy got worse and the UK's pre-existing economic woes started to grow ever larger. The sole bit of meaningful relief that labor was able to achieve was in expanding unemployment benefits to cover more people, and even then, fierce inter-party debates were sparked off over how far the benefits should go. The reaction from the conservatives was naturally even worse, and as unemployment started accelerating in 1930, the corresponding costs of the program increased as well. There were simply way more people that needed unemployment benefits. By June 1931, unemployment was up to 2.7 million, and the government was facing a budget shortfall it couldn't address through its own revenues or through borrowing. So quickly after being increased, unemployment benefits were slashed by 20%. Turned out that couldn't alleviate the fiscal situation, and by summer of 1931, after frittering away precious time in 1930 chasing half measures, the UK's fiscal crisis broke out in earnest. By July 1931, 2.5 million pounds worth of gold were leaving the country every day, the tax base was shrinking, and foreign creditors were increasingly unwilling to meet the demands of the UK's government. On August 1st, the government was able to claim that sufficient loans had been secured from America and France. This proved to be an illusion, and by the 11th, those loans had already been exhausted and more weren't on the table. It didn't help that the British banking system itself was in deep, having provided loans to Central Europe, especially Germany, and those were debts that weren't going to be made good on anytime soon. Not only would the vaunted British banks not be partners in a rescue, they might actually need bailing out themselves. You already know from two weeks ago that the solution to this was to remove the UK from the gold standard and allow the pound to fall in value, thereby expanding the money supply. This was something that MacDonald, most of labor, and conventional wisdom in general at that moment believed was impossible. The gold standard and a stable currency were simply too important to maintain, and all possible alternatives had to be exhausted first. For the better part of two weeks, there would be constant meetings amongst the government, usually stretching late into the night, debating where cuts could be made to the budget and where money could be rediverted to minimize the deficits. Eventually, the conservatives and liberals were brought in on the deliberations, and naturally, they preferred to slash programs as far as they could. MacDonald himself proposed to Labour that they cut unemployment benefits by a further 10%, which set up another firestorm in his party. Once again, it was the poor soldiering the burden created by faceless officials and financers. The critical meeting occurred on August 23rd, a Sunday, when MacDonald's cabinet was deadlocked again on how to move forward. 
McDonald asked for all of them to resign. The alternative was McDonald himself resigning and bringing down the government anyway, so they all obliged their leader. McDonald then approached the king that evening and offered his own resignation. George V declined it, believing that McDonald could still lead, just with a wildly reconfigured government. Moving forward, there would be a united national government instead of a labor one. The conservatives and liberals would all be invited to join the cabinet and take positions within the new government. When informed of this the next day, McDonald's own party was fully outraged. The other two parties, though, immediately accepted the invitation, and McDonald became prime minister of a government composed of members from all three groups. Or at least part of them. The vast majority of labor went into opposition under Arthur Henderson, which MacDonald had predicted and made his peace with. It was understood that to break bread with the Tories was tantamount to political suicide in labor politics, and MacDonald was joined by only 15 other labor MPs to form the National Labor Party. Those 15 MPs coming out of a pool of a total of 287 labor representatives. While MacDonald had figured most would turn their backs on him, the paltry showing was no small source of embarrassment. You could hardly blame the majority of labor, as those who entered the national government were quickly expelled from the party proper. The liberals, too, would suffer their own split, as Lloyd George had been sidelined due to long-term illness, and the party fell to the leadership of Herbert Samuel, who joined with the coalition. While Lloyd George supported the move initially, he was soon making noise over the anti-free trade stance of the coalition and split with his small group of supporters. Samuel himself would gradually distance himself from the coalition over the same issue, unable to make his own accommodation. This left the conservatives, who benefited enormously from all the infighting. Despite MacDonald continuing to be prime minister, it was the conservatives who dominated the government, and MacDonald was effectively their prisoner. And the reason that MacDonald and Labour had been able to hang on for so long was that the Tories were having a go of it themselves internally for the past couple of years. The leader of the Conservatives was still Stanley Baldwin, as it had been since the early 1920s. Baldwin was a lazy, largely visionless man, but he had a personable touch and was popular with the people for his simple demeanor. His fellows were getting tired of him, though. Simply due to both his length of time and leadership and the failure of the 1929 election, there were understandably challengers to him. Centered around one Lord Beaverbrook, a faction of Tories advocated for a protectionist tariffs to be thrown up not just around the UK, but the Empire as a whole. The British Empire would be an internal free trade zone in their vision, with outsiders subject to tariffs. The problem for Beaverbrook was that everyone understood that it was highly unlikely the Dominions would reduce their own protections to imports from Britain. That didn't deter the Lord, and he went off to form the United Empire Party in early 1930. While he would be quickly reconciled with Baldwin in May of that year, his momentary break removed him as a rival to leadership. More pressing was the presence of Winston Churchill and the rise of Neville Chamberlain. Neville had leapfrogged his older half-brother Austin in the party's hierarchy by attaching himself to Baldwin, but was now angling for actual leadership. Baldwin, though, used the prospect of Churchill being the one to replace him as leverage to keep Chamberlain's support. Chamberlain didn't much care for Churchill, and was deeply suspicious of the man's continued relationship with Lloyd George. Chamberlain nursed a years-long grudge against Lloyd George over being fired from a government posting during World War I. Supposedly, the two got into a shouting match where no small amount of words were exchanged. Which checks out, Lloyd George was a nightmare to work for. 
Chamberlain feared that if Churchill achieved power, he'd bring in Lloyd George in some capacity, something Chamberlain found unacceptable. So the holding pattern kept until January 1931, when Churchill removed himself from contention by resigning from his shadow cabinet position. The situation was that Labour was making moves to allow India more autonomy, which was something that Churchill deplored, while Baldwin and the rest supported. Over a desire to see India retained as a dependency, Churchill successfully isolated himself in Parliament until 1940. He would still have a swath of friends and supporters, but he'd be kept away from leadership. So yeah, his biography episodes aren't coming anytime soon. What this also meant was that by the time the national government came into existence, the leadership of the Conservatives was set, and they could claim to be the most united of the parties, which meant that the national government would chart a conservative course. But the first order of business was that little matter of the fiscal crisis that was going critical. On September 10th, a budget was presented. Like in the case of France and Poincaré's second go-around after the Ruhr crisis had subsided, doors were opened once labor had been removed from power that had otherwise been barred. Taxes were raised, government spending that had been protected by the Tories was slashed. Like in France, the conservative element of society was all right making concessions in a crisis, so long as it was being done by their own people. Naturally, many of the hits were pay cuts to public sector workers, ranging from soldiers to teachers, and slashes to unemployment benefits. Again. Still, for that brief moment in early September, the government could live on its own means without relying heavily on foreign loans. The effort, though, did not matter. Before the budget could even be approved, the circumstances it was based upon disintegrated further. And there was no answer after that. No further budget scheme, no further foreign credit to draw upon. The monetary supply of the country was restricted by gold, and gold was draining away ever more rapidly. The battle was finally conceded on September 21st, and Parliament hurriedly approved a bill taking the nation off the gold standard. And funny thing, after fighting to get back on the standard in 1925, and then fighting to stay on it as the economy collapsed, nobody really cared about its passing. Oh, governments around the world had great interest in the switch, the UK having been the standards champion, and they were all curious to see how it would play out. But in the UK itself, what might have at one time been unthinkable became quite otherwise. Part of that was, with Labour being shuffled off into opposition, risks could be taken with more quote-unquote responsible government. And the Tories sought out to solidify their positions in that new government. With the gold standard being done away with, the next move in conservative eyes was to throw up tariffs to ensure that the UK's market at home would be well protected. Which, it might seem weird talking about tariffs this much, but that's all the conservatives themselves talked about besides budget cuts, so there you go. With the deprecated pound, exports would be more attractive than they had been in years, and with tariffs, the home markets would be uninviting to others. To do that, though, the Tories fought to make the national government permanent. MacDonald had intended it to be a temporary arrangement to solve the fiscal crisis. Once that was done, they'd all go back to how things were before in Parliament. That didn't happen. The Tories were calling the shots, and their rank and file wanted a new election so they could pitch the tariff idea to the people. The people were mm, largely indifferent to the issue, but they were scared as hell in general. Keep in mind, all these endless political maneuverings were happening under the backdrop of massive layoffs and shrinking prospects. The press supported the national government, the king supported the national government, and the supporters of labor were thoroughly demoralized by MacDonald throwing in with the Tories. 
The October 27th election delivered the national government 556 seats, nine out of ten of them awarded to the Tories. Labor was absolutely, positively demolished, being reduced to a pitiful 52 seats in total, and the Liberals themselves were divided into a trio of factions. MacDonald afterwards was still sitting as Prime Minister, but the government could not truly be said to be his. The Conservatives would be in the driver's seat of leadership for the next nine years, brought low only by the disasters of spring 1940 during World War II. The results were so lopsided that I'm really not going to linger over them much beyond that. Uh, there isn't really a point. The Conservatives won big. Actually, not just big. They won huge. And having abandoned their own fiscal orthodoxy, which had constrained the UK in the first place, the Conservatives were nicely positioned themselves to take the credit of the ensuing recovery. As I described a couple weeks ago, the pound lost value, immediately losing 25% of it versus other currencies and falling by 30% overall by year's end. This made exports far more competitive as British goods were cheaper to buy. It wasn't an immediate boon as other nations did have a lot less purchasing power at that moment, but it was something. More important was the Bank of England cut interest rates, which made borrowing more attractive and allowed businesses far easier access to credit. The big story to the recovery was that with all this cheap debt flowing around suddenly, domestic demand skyrocketed. The big story was in the housing sector, as new apartments and homes, especially in London, were constructed in droves, and at prices low enough that people with work could actually afford them. This had a positive feedback loop, as construction and the manufacture of consumer appliances created jobs, which then created new consumers. It wasn't exactly the level of the U.S. in the 1920s, but for the U.K. it was huge. That the recovery was fueled by internal consumption also had the effect of making the Greater British Empire a more distant priority for both the people and government. The colonies and dominions weren't the magic bullet economic markets that some had hoped for, and the U.K. turned a little bit inwards in its outlook. Not decisively so, the empire was still of huge importance, but the seeds of a post-empire mentality were kind of planted in this period. The cheaper access to debt also meant businesses could finally, finally, start modernizing their facilities. It created conditions where businesses started to be consolidated into larger firms with larger factories as well. Hence, the economy, both in resource extraction and in manufacturing, uh, became more efficient. It's important to note that this wasn't exactly beneficial to the consumer, though, as instead of slashing costs as one would expect from more cheaply produced goods, these consolidated companies actually increased their prices, and not just to match inflation either. The high tariffs protected their industries, and unlike, say, the U.S., the U.K. did not have a history of antitrust laws, so pricing collusion was allowed. In addition, companies shielded from competition by tariffs were oftentimes poorly managed, with people brought into positions of power through long-standing networks of family and friends, not actual competence. The problems weren't enough to disrupt the recovery, and they would be overshadowed by the coming world war, but part of the UK's struggles after 1945 were laid down by the bad habits of these years. It also demonstrated that the national government was going to be hands-off on the recovery. Beyond leaving the gold standard and cheapening debt, the expansion and consumption that marked the recovery would be handled by the market. This would create distortions, as while those who could get a job saw opportunities open up for improved material circumstances, or the significant numbers of workers on long-term unemployment, eking out an existence on slashed unemployment benefits, the 30s were a continuation of poverty and deprivation. If anything, it was made all the worse by watching other workers enter into modernized industries and newly built homes, 
and knowing that they had been left out. But despite the inevitable losers of a free market system, by the end of 1932, Britain was on the road to recovery, and all its government really had to do was abandon the economic dogma that it had championed for the previous decade. Which made a degree of sense, with counterparts in Europe having caught up with them economically and the U.S. surpassing them, drastic action was seen to be needed. And that meant a step back from global trade and a focus on internal consumption and creating favorable deals with the rest of the empire. And despite the empire as a concept being in kind of a doldrums during the 30s, it was still a vast enterprise, and the collection of interconnected economies made its reach still larger. I didn't talk about the empire too much today, but I'll be circling around to the UK's relationship with it later this season. And as a result of being quick to jettison a policy that wasn't working, and because it had that big-ass empire to draw from, the UK was able to get its recovery started far earlier than its counterparts on the European continent. The domestic price to the rejuvenation was a decade of tepid conservative rule, though. Uh, one could argue the entire appeal of such dominance was the success of Tory policies, but the example of Britain's neighbor across the Channel, France, provides an interesting counterpoint. It was dominated from the start of the Depression by a conservative government, and for the first couple years, it appeared as if that nation would defy global trends and weather the storm intact. It was not to be, though, and that nation's depression was only delayed, and in fact, would become far more entrenched than in the UK. So, join me next week as we head back to Mary Perry, and as always, thank you very much for listening.